Welcome, so glad that you are here. I'm Celeste Cranston, director of the Center for Biblical and Theological Education. And it's been our delight to host this event here in partnership with World Vision here on the campus of SPU. We've had all kinds of wonderful opportunities to think, pray, listen, talk, process, feel, and I just have a few thoughts just to throw at you, things like this. What is mine to do? Listen to the subtext of your life. How do I offer a rainbow to those who are still stuck in the darkness of the ark? How do I sit with my own poverty and learn to receive from someone who's very different than I am? These women, their sanctification drove them to go outside of themselves. I'm just quoting, I, I hate to do sound bites, but let me just tell you today, there have been so many moments of aha that I just want to offer a word of thanks to, to God for that. Will you join me in prayer? God, you are so gracious to you, so we give you all thanks and praise. And we gather now in your name, trusting that you will move in this time for your purposes and your kingdom, and we will respond to your spirit. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, as I said, we are really thankful for this time together, the time that has already been so rich and looking forward to hearing in just a few minutes from Richard Stearns. But in the meantime, we've asked a couple students. I'm gonna invite Michael Richards and Alyssa Cook to come forward. We've asked them just to think a little bit about their own experiences and to share a brief reflection. Alyssa, are you here? Yeah, come on up. We're just gonna have you right up here. A bit of a reflection on their own experience about what it means to engage the culture and change the world, how they have been involved in the challenges of that. So I'm going to now ask Michael Richards, followed by Alyssa Cook, just to go ahead and share in that order. Um, yeah, so we were asked just to share briefly um, some way in our lives that we've put faith into action. And um, so I just wanted to share a story. Um, in the spring of my freshman year, I applied for several positions with SPU's Sprint program, which sends teams of students all around the world each summer to serve with and learn from effective Christian ministries. The moment that I heard I had been offered the prayer coordinator position on the Sprint student leadership team, I was actually a little bit frustrated because as a business major, I had wanted a business-oriented position, which I thought would give me a better job experience and look better on a resume. <laughs> However, it was only a few minutes after my initial frustration as I was walking to my room that I remembered I had been asking God to give me an open heart in case he wanted to throw me a curveball, and that's exactly what he had done. Once that realization dawned on me, I literally laughed out loud at myself and gladly accepted the position. Uh, three years later, uh, I get to see that God used that position to humble me and provide me with a viable perspective on leadership, uh, that is, not being the leader. And also, uh, through that non-business position, uh, God surprised me by opening the door to apply for Sprint's lead student position of Sprint Coordinator, a role I'm now serving in for my second year. The ironic part was that when the opportunity to apply for, for the coordinator position presented itself, uh, I actually felt entirely intimidated by the position uh, and had to be strongly encouraged to apply before I mustered the faith to do so. Uh, 
God used the role of prayer coordinator to humble me so that, uh, so that I could better understand the weight and responsibility of being a leader, that it had nothing to do with making myself look good and everything to do with serving those I'd be leading and working alongside. So when I applied for sprint leadership initially, uh, I genuinely, genuinely did want to serve and to see short-term missions impact other students' lives the way that God had used it to impact mine. But I ob obviously also had a selfish motive mixed in, to hold the title and to do work I thought would make me look, feel good about myself and look good to future employers. God knew that, and in offering me the prayer coordinator position instead, he was asking me if he could do some heart surgery, and I don't regret saying yes. So in my experience, faith in action wasn't flashy, and it wasn't what I thought I wanted initially at first glance. It required an open, listening heart and a choice to obey. But ultimately, it was also the most rewarding and life-giving path for me. I just want to encourage um, everyone here to put your faith into action by listening, obeying, and stepping into the plans that God has for you because he has your best in mind. Uh, putting your faith into action will allow you to experience fullness of life and purpose along with God's wisdom, faithfulness, and goodness. Thanks. At my church, on the Thursday before Easter, we have a ceremony where each person ha first has their feet washed and then washes the feet of the next person. And as I was waiting in line this year for my turn, I suddenly realized how much easier it is to serve than to be served. And this may seem counterintuitive, but I'm not talking about the kind of service that you get in a restaurant or VIP treatment. That kind is really easy to accept. I'm talking about the kind of service, accepting the kind of service that says, I am vulnerable, I need help, I can't do this on my own. It takes a lot of humility to accept that kind of service. And we're very reluctant to do that, we humans, because we always want to be the ones with the answers and the resources and the generosity and the love. We say, helping others is great, do that. But help, being helped by others carries quite a bit more stigma with it. Just think, would you rather admit to your friends that you volunteer at a food bank or that you've accepted food from that same place? The ministry that I lead is called Urban Plunge. It's not a weekly volunteer activity like most of Urban Involvement's other programs. Rather, it's a one-time experience where participants learn about homelessness by living on the streets of Seattle for five days. They're put into groups of three or four, and each person receives $2, three bus passes, and a place to stay at night, but no other resources are provided. To get food, participants must rely on the generosity of strangers or the meals provided by organizations that serve the homeless. For many, this is both the most valuable and the most challenging part of the experience. Because during this time, the participants are able for once to stand on the other side of the counter and receive rather than give. I think that Christians oftentimes feel a lot of pressure to be perfect, to have it all together, to not accept help from others. After all, we think, Jesus himself said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. 
And that's very true. But we need to take that statement in context. Jesus made this claim right after the disciples had been arguing about who would be the first in the kingdom of heaven. And he told them that it wouldn't be those who exercise authority or lord it over others. In, Matthew, in all four Gospels, we hear the story of a woman who washes Jesus' feet before he washes those of his disciples. And he doesn't get down on the floor and say, no, I have come to serve you, though he certainly has. He accepts her act of service and tells his disciples that she has done a beautiful thing for me. In fact, in Luke, Jesus even rebukes the Pharisee whose house he's in for not providing water for Jesus' feet or oil to anoint his head, which would have been common courtesies for any guest. So it seems that Jesus would have accepted these acts of service. Yes, the Son of Man came to serve and to reject the kind of service that comes with being a ruler, but he also accepted being served as a human being with human needs and dignity. All this is to say that service is absolutely crucial to the Christian life, but we also need to open ourselves to being served, to allow others to help us. The beautiful thing for me about Urban Plunge is that for five days, participants are forced to do this, to open themselves up to vulnerability, to say, I can't do this on my own. After all, without this openness, we cannot have our feet washed, and we have no part with Jesus. And most importantly, without allowing ourselves to be served and to accept things from others, we can't accept the greatest gift that Jesus offers to us, and we cannot become part of his body. Thank you, both to Michael and Alyssa. As we look forward now to hearing from Richard Stearns, I just want to introduce uh, you to the next segment of the evening. We're going to be led in scripture and in prayer by two students, and after that time, Dr. Lestiel will introduce our speaker for the evening. But let me just invite up to the stage now Arlisha Etienne and Dre Anderson. Come on up. They're going to lead us in a time of hearing scripture and then in responsive prayer. So on the overhead, you will see that the words of scripture come up. Your part is when it says in italics, congregation. That's when you are to respond. And we'll let them lead us to that point. And after that point, as I said, Dr. Steele will introduce our speaker for the evening. So let's turn our attention now to the word of the Lord as led by Arlisha and Dre. Hear the word of the, of the Lord, Lord from, from the, the prophet, prophet Isaiah. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. Hear the, the word, word of the Lord, Lord from, from the, the prophet, prophet Micah. Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Has he told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Hear the, Hear word, the word of the, of the Lord, Lord from, from the, the gospel, gospel of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ. according to Luke. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hear the, the word, word of the Lord from, from the, the epistle, epistle to, to the, the Philippians. Philippians. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This, this is, is the, the word, word of the, of the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. That was you guys too. Please join us in prayer. Gracious God, loving Christ, Holy Spirit, hear our prayer. For all who have fallen victim to hatred and inhumanity, for those loved ones who are left behind to mourn, for the souls of those whose hearts are cold. Lord, hear our prayer. For those born into a world of conflict and violence, for men win, women and children who suffer needlessly. Lord, hear our prayer. For all who have been forced into unemployment, who long to return to work, for all who struggle to support their families. Lord, hear our prayer. For the children who cry in their beds at night and wonder, what have I done? For their mothers and fathers who must try to explain the unexplainable. Lord, hear our prayer. For the, the redemption, redemption of, of the souls, souls of both victim and perpetrator, for those who commit themselves to the forgiveness of sins, Lord, hear our prayer. Open our eyes that we may see the needs of others. Open our ears that we may hear their cries. Open our hearts that we may feel their anguish and their joy. Let us not be afraid to defend the oppressed, the poor, the powerless. Open our ears and eyes, our hearts and lives, to receive your boundless love and grace, that we may be able to see as you see, to love as you love, and to serve in your name. Amen. Good evening to you all. A good number of you have been here a good part of this day, and we thank you for participating in this uh, day event where we can focus on the whole gospel, not the whole in our gospel, but the whole in our gospel, something like that. 
the title of the book is The Whole in Our Gospel. The title of the conference is The Whole Gospel. Uh, there's a wonderful turn-of-the-century movement in missions where the language of the whole gospel for the whole world uh, became a key motivator for many new mission groups that took place around the end of the 1800s into the 1900s. They later add the, added the whole gospel for the whole world by the whole church because they recognized that that language of wholeness of the gospel and the world was actually creating tensions and tearing apart the wholeness of the church because of the emphases of are we really communicating the gospel by what we're doing when we give to the poor, when we don't give to the poor and only speak the word, are we really doing the gospel? It's a fascinating dilemma that's been with us for a long time. And the wonderful gift that Rich Stearns has given to us in his book, The Whole in Our Gospel, is that he reminds us what the basic gospel, the kerygma of the gospel is all about. Caring for the poor in the name of Jesus Christ. I gave a more formal introduction to Rich this morning. I'll forego the biography tonight. Uh, it is an immense gift that the president of World Vision USA has taken the entire day to be with us. Uh, when you lead such a complex organization, giving up such a great amount of time is a very difficult and challenging task, and we are grateful to you, Rich, for doing so. We're grateful for the book. We're grateful for the leadership. We're grateful for the reminder of the basics of what the gospel is all about. Rich will say to you that um, doing the work of caring for the poor in the world is rocket science. It is rocket science because of the complexities of the challenges and the complexities of dealing with governments and education and health and science and all that goes with it. But what's not rocket science is what Jesus tells us to do. And we so often forget the basics um, and ignore what's there. Rich has drawn us back to those basics, and we deeply appreciate that. World Vision shows us the way to do the work that the gospel has called us to. We are grateful for that. We are grateful for Rich's work and contribution to that, and we're grateful for what he's about to share with us. Rich. Thank you, Les. Uh, Appreciate the introduction. You know, I, uh, I've had a great day here at SBU, and uh, Les left out one of the biographical facts that I am now a trustee of this institution and have been for about a year. Uh, Phil and the board chair, uh, Dennis Weibling, invited me to join the board, and it, it seemed like a perfect fit because this mission statement, engaging the culture, changing the world, is really, it could be World Vision's uh, mission statement. It could be our mission as an organization. And I love uh, to be associated with an institution that really tries to live out this kind of mission every day in the classroom and in programs like Urban Plunge. Uh, it has been energizing to be here today. Um, I am humbled as I meet and listen to some of the students here uh, realizing that their faith is so much deeper and their knowledge and thought process is so much more advanced than mine was when I was your age. Um, I didn't really have much of a clue about the world until I was 47 and came to World Vision uh, a number of years ago. Um, so I kind of like the Apostle, pa Apostle Paul had a, a revelation a little bit later in life uh, of what the Lord expected of me. 
And uh, it is so exciting to see young people learning in an environment with mentors and professors that can help them uh, who are determined uh, at age 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 that you're going to do something to engage the culture and change the world. You know, my family has become a great consumer of Christian education. Um, I have five children, and yesterday, uh, well actually Sunday, I was at Wheaton College's graduation, boo. Uh, <coughs> my son Pete graduated uh, Sunday from Wheaton College. Um, my daughter Sarah went to Taylor University and got a master's at Seattle Pacific University. My daughter Grace, I'm going to talk about her in a minute, she's uh, going to be a junior at Pepperdine uh, in Southern California. And my daughter Hannah is in law school at Pepperdine University. And uh, my, uh, the black sheep of our family, my son Andy, went to Cornell, where I went and my wife went. Uh, and Hannah also went there undergrad. So we've had a sampling of both secular and Christian education, and I think uh, what we've learned through that is uh, the kids who went to the Christian schools got a much more profound education uh, than the ones that went to that Ivy League uh, poser in New York. Um, so, uh, in any case, I, I just love Christian education, what it means, and how it equips you for the world. You know, I want to begin tonight by telling a story about two 19-year-old girls and then a story about two different Sundays in December of 2010, just last year. The first girl uh, in my story of two 19-year-olds is my daughter, Grace. She is 19 and a sophomore at Pepperdine in Malibu. Uh, and I can confidently tell you that Pepperdine has weather much better than Seattle with the exception of today. Uh, but we all know that today was an exception. Uh, to the rule. Uh, Grace is the youngest of our five children and she has had the blessing of growing up in a stable Christian home with parents who love her, although she might challenge the notion that it has always been a blessing for her. Um, like most American parents, uh, my wife Renee and I have done everything we know how to do to show Grace our love, to give her every opportunity to have a great future. That's what parents do, right? We pay for her considerable tuition fees, much higher than SPUs. We keep her fed and in clothes, and sometimes the clothing budget is higher than the tuition budget, or so it seems. Um, and we take every opportunity and have since the time that she made her first scratch with a crayon on a piece of paper to praise uh, her accomplishments and her achievements and to encourage her uh, to be all that God wants her to be. This year, my daughter Grace spent a year abroad in Heidelberg, Germany, and had an amazing year. And with no classes on Friday, that's just wrong, uh, she and her friends traveled and traveled and traveled throughout Europe. Paris, Berlin, Rome, Florence, Madrid, Lucerne, Budapest, London, Athens, Istanbul, and even Jerusalem. And that's not the complete list of where she traveled this year in Europe and uh, on that continent. The bottom line is that Grace has had a pretty sweet year by almost any measurement. Now she rolls her eyes when I tell her that her father uh, made his very first international trip at age 31 when I flew to London on business and I thought I died and gone to heaven that I was actually going to be able to see a European city. Um, I have however made up for lost time since then in my travels with World Vision. I have traveled well over a million and a half miles in the last 10 or 13 years. Uh, so I've made up for a little bit of a lost time. All right, so you get the idea 
of the story of girl number one in my, uh, my narrative here. The second 19-year-old girl is a Bolivian girl named Ruth. I met her in January of this year when I went to Bolivia for a World Vision trip, and Ruth has a very different story than my 19-year-old daughter, Grace. She was born into a poor Bolivian family. Ruth was actually abandoned by her father uh, before she was born. Her father left. She actually has never met her biological father. She grew up in a mud brick home with a dirt floor with no running water or electricity. She came of age in a community where very few ever make it to high school, especially girls. But you see, Ruth was a World Vision sponsored child and she and her family received some help over the years from World Vision. Ruth participated in World Vision's youth empowerment program where we work with children and youth to develop them as leaders in the developing world. We try to build their confidence and their self-esteem in a world that tells them every day that they are nobodies and that they are worthless and their lives don't amount to anything. We work with them to develop a vision for a better future for themselves and also for their peers and their community. We expose these young people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We explain how their lives can be transformed by God's love and his forgiveness. And we try to nurture them in the Christian values of compassion and justice and forgiveness and love. Well, these groups of young people often have an amazingly positive impact on their communities and families. And Ruth led her small leadership group when she was about 14 in a plan that they would petition the government of Bolivia to open a legal office in their community where women and children who had been abused uh, could report that abuse and find legal uh, counsel and protection uh, from the abusive, uh, usually the father or the husband. Uh, she even led uh, a letter writing campaign and some demonstrations and marches in the streets of her town uh, to prevail upon the government to open such uh, a clinic for uh, women and children. And they were actually successful. And uh, the government of Bolivia, the local government, did open a legal clinic. It was open two days a week and women and children could then come and find the help that they needed because of the problems of alcoholism and domestic abuse in her community. Well, from this little experience, Ruth developed her own vision uh, that she wanted to stay in school so that someday she could be an advocate, a legal advocate, who would, uh, as her calling and her vocation, she would help women and children uh, who had been abused and who needed someone to be a champion for them. But when Ruth was about 15, her dream was shattered. Money was tight for a family of eight children. Ruth's mother had remarried and had other children. And Ruth's mother pulled her out of school and insisted that she go to Cochabamba, about an hour away, to live with her uncle where she could work as a domestic servant, uh, cleaning hotels and cleaning different homes. And uh, so Ruth was brokenhearted because her dream was to finish school and go to university and even law school. So devastated by this, she went to Cochabamba. She had no choice. She worked about 12 hours a day as a maid for hire. She lived with her uncle and she even hinted to me as she told her story that there might have been some abuse by her uncle, uh, but she wouldn't really talk about it, which I can understand. Well, after months of doing this, uh, she couldn't take it any longer and she ran away from her uncle and ran back home. And she told her mother she just couldn't do this anymore, that she, she desperately wanted to finish school. Well, the next blow came when her mother, uh, who had accepted her back home, her mother said that she had decided that 
she and the rest of the children were going to move to Argentina, but that Ruth couldn't come with them because Ruth was old enough to care for herself. And unless she was willing to drop out of school and work in Argentina, that she could not come with her mother and seven siblings. She was 15 and old enough to take care of herself. So Ruth, just try to imagine the pain that this young girl had to endure. Uh, she stayed behind rather than go with her family and rather than give up her dream of uh, going to college and finishing high school. And she was now totally alone, uh, living with friends where, when she could, living with other relatives that lived in the community when she could, literally as kind of a vagabond going from house to house and staying in high school. Um, in order to support herself, she hired herself out for all kinds of manual labor. And one day, she lifted something very heavy and sustained a horrible injury. It was so painful, she said she could not stand upright and walk. And she half uh, crawled and half uh, walked to the World Vision office asking for help. And when World Vision saw what was wrong with her, they immediately took her back to Cochabamba to a hospital where she was diagnosed with a severe hernia and was admitted for immediate surgery. And so World Vision, uh, because she had no parents, uh, we paid for the surgery. We made sure that Ruth uh, got the medical care that she needed and the rehabilitation, and she was restored to health. Well, the day that I met Ruth in January, she told me her story through a steady stream of tears as we sat uh, in a little room in her community in Bolivia. And uh, now 19, against all odds, she managed to graduate from high school uh, in 2009. And unbelievably, I couldn't believe after hearing the story, she is now back in Cochabamba. She has enrolled in a university and is taking courses toward her dream of becoming uh, a lawyer or an advocate in her country. She's living with another uncle in uh, Cochabamba, and she works uh, day and night uh, to try to support and pay for her tuition and her books, uh, to pay some of her living expenses, to pay for clothing and things that she needs. She broke into tears saying it was a terrible struggle for her. And uh, I want you to listen to this quote from my interview with Ruth because these are her actual words. She said, I'm completely alone always. It takes a lot of courage to keep going and to keep doing this alone. I want to be a professional five years from now. In spite of my problems, I am always smiling. I've been many places, learned many things. I've learned from the Bible. I've learned from my mistakes. I stand up from failures. Even if inside I'm dying, I pass my joy onto others. We have to go forward. That is why God gave us life. With God's help, I will. I trust God and myself that I will be able to do it to pursue her dream. Well, at this point in the interview, I was crying like a baby. Ruth was crying like a baby. And all I could think was to tell her about my 19-year-old daughter, Grace, and how much I loved her and supported her so that she could pursue her dreams. I told her that this is what a father is supposed to do, to love his daughter, to love his son, and to help them pursue their dreams. And then Ruth said words I will never forget. She looked at me through tears and she said, I don't know how a father loves his daughter. I don't know how a father loves his daughter. Well, hearing this from this young girl just about tore my heart out. And so after my meeting with Ruth, I broke all the World Vision rules. I am the president, so I get to do that. <laughs> I went to our national director and I said, I'm gonna help this girl. 
And you see, we're not supposed to intervene and just help individual people. We're not supposed to give money to individual people that we meet on, uh, you know, because World Vision has these very orderly programs that work in the communities. And Ruth was already beyond the age where she was eligible for our sponsorship programs. We work 18 and under, generally. And I said, I don't care about the rules. Uh, this girl is a winner, and I want to bet on her. And I said, what could I do to help her uh, pay her tuition, pay for her books, get through university, and realize her dream of becoming a lawyer? You see, I wanted this girl, for once in her life, to know what the love of a father feels like. So we put our heads together and the national director said, I think we could open a bank account in Cochabamba. We could make World Vision a co-signatory. And if you and your wife would deposit money in that account, uh, we could provide for Ruth's expenses. We could kind of watch over her. She's only 19 and make sure she's not having wild parties with the money and things like that. And, uh, and I said, well, let's do it. And a few weeks later, I got back from Seattle. They told me the bank account had been set up and uh, Renee and I wired the money to that account. And we have committed to supporting Ruth for the next five years to see her graduate from university and become that legal advocate. Um, so now I have four kids in college instead of three. Just when I thought I was almost at the end of the road, I've got another child in college. What I'm especially excited about is that this summer, probably in the month of July, my daughter Grace is going to intern in Bolivia and she's going to get to meet my new daughter Ruth uh, in Cochabamba. And I can't wait to see a picture of the two girls together because um, it will mean a lot to me. And you see this story for me, it's about making poverty personal. World Vision is a big institution. We help millions of children around the world. But I can't get up every morning and go to work and run an institution. I have to know the names and the faces of some of the people that we're helping. And it has to be personal to me. And so a little bit of advice to any of you that want to engage in global issues or local issues in helping people in need is it's got to be personal. It can't be institutional. Uh, we don't help statistics. We help human beings. And uh, girls like Ruth uh, keep me going every day because I remember their stories, I've seen their faces, I've sat in their homes in many cases, and uh, it's what gets me up in the morning and gets me going all day as I try to make a difference for them. Now I want to tell you my second story about two different Sundays. On Friday, December 3rd last year, Renee and I had breakfast with Laura Bush at the annual World Vision Women's AIDS Day breakfast in Manhattan at a prestigious uh, club in Manhattan. <clears throat> and uh, we sat, ne sat next to Mrs. Bush, and she was our keynote speaker for that event. And the very next morning, uh, December 4th, we had breakfast in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And on Sunday, December 5th, the day after that, Renee and I went to a worship service that we will not soon forget. We had the opportunity to, atten to attend a service in the middle of a sprawling tent camp for thousands of displaced people near Port-au-Prince, refugees in their own country. The church was just a crude structure of UN tarps and scrap lumber. I'm sure the UN is horrified to know that their tarps were built into a church in this uh, refugee camp. Uh, and we watched kind of dumbfounded as hundreds of refugees who had lost everything uh, streamed into that tent for the Sunday worship service. Several hundred people made their way to that little church. And to our continued astonishment, 
The church service was filled with joy and hope and courage and overflowing thanksgiving to God. I looked at this and I wondered how could these people so enthusiastically express their thanksgiving? It made no sense to me as an entitled American who grouses at the smallest inconveniences in my life. Even if a traffic light is too long, I get impatient, I get annoyed. If there's traffic on the way to church, I get annoyed. Uh, yet here in this place, people who had literally lost everything expressed nothing but praise and thanksgiving pouring out of them uh, to the Lord that day. Their worship service went on for more than two hours. In the front row of this little church, and, and I was just as close to the front row as I am this evening, uh, there were six amputees. They ranged in age from six to 60. A little girl about six had lost uh, a leg, and an older man in his 60s had also lost a leg, and there were six of them in the front row. And that wasn't the only row with amputees. Many of these people had sustained terrible injuries during the earthquake. But they were clapping and smiling and singing song after song and lifting their prayers and praises to God. One of the women, one of the woman, women was named Demosi, Demosi Lufine. She had lost not one, but two limbs in the earthquake. When a building collapsed on her, her right arm and her left leg had to be amputated four days after the earthquake because she did not get to medical care in time to save those limbs. She is a mother of two little girls, I think eight and 10 years old. But there she was, not only standing up and praising God, but she was the choir leader. She conducted the choir. She led the prayers for the congregation. And standing on her now prosthetic limb and clapping with her one hand, she was singing and praising God and leading the whole congregation in worship. Her courage, her strength, her dignity set an example for all of her neighbors who must have looked at her believing that if she can overcome the cards that she's been dealt, if she can deal with losing two limbs, losing her home, losing her job, and now living in a tent, then anything we suffered, we can overcome as well. Demosi was an inspiration uh, to her friends and the people who lived around her as she stood in front of that church. Following the church service, we went to where Demosi lives in a camp with her two daughters. And just imagine after losing an arm and a leg, your home and your job, that you now had to live in a five foot by eight foot tent for the next 12 months with a dirt floor. Can you even imagine that kind of suffering? We sat in Demosi's tent and we talked with her at length, trying to understand the source of this woman's strength. She told us that she was deeply grateful because God had spared her that day of the earthquake. She has no bitterness, she has no signs of depression. She hopes to find work as a seller in the market when she receives her new prosthetic arm that she's waiting for. Um, she also hoped to receive a temporary home that World Vision was starting to build in the camp and I've been told since then that she did move into a, a more uh, uh, amenable home. It was probably a 20 by 20 cement slab, but for Demosi it was a palace. Um, and I asked this woman, what would you like to tell, what would you like me to tell people back in the United States about you? And she smiled at us with a big smile and she said, you tell them that you've seen Lazarus and that she's back from the dead. That's what she said. You see, Demosi believes that she was saved for a reason. She was saved to raise her girls, to serve her God for a few more years. 
And she believes God gave her a second chance to do just that. Well, what about the other Sunday? The very next Sunday, this is a story of two girls and two Sundays, Renee and I returned to our home church in Seattle, Washington, University Presbyterian Church, to find it decked out for the Advent season. Two 25-foot Christmas trees graced the sanctuary, which was adorned with festive banners and garlands and pine boughs and poinsettias. The children's choir came in on cue, all dressed up, and they adoringly sang the hymn, Go Tell It on the Mountain, for the whole congregation. The largest pipe organ west of the Mississippi River filled the sanctuary with the beloved Christmas carols and hymns. Undoubtedly, many of the worshipers at church that day uh, went home glowing after the service and maybe went home to watch one of the NFL football games scheduled for that afternoon, or maybe to do some last-minute Christmas shopping uh, in the malls. Well, I think you get an idea where I'm going with these two stories. Here was the body of Christ in Haiti, stricken, suffering, poor, desperate, and the body of Christ in Seattle, comfortable, insulated, affluent. And here were two 19-year-old girls, one blessed with every possible opportunity, and the other one alone, abused, abandoned, with no one to help her. These two stories are stories of disparity. They're stories that illustrate the extreme disparity that we find between the haves and the have-nots in our world. And my question for you tonight is this, what do you think God sees when he looks down at these two churches and these two girls? What does he make of this incredible disparity that we see in our world? I wanna develop this theme a little bit tonight by contrasting for you two very different worldviews. We all have a worldview, and our worldview influences everything we do, the decisions we make, the choices we make, the way we think about things. Worldview matters. The first worldview is what I like to call the Magic Kingdom worldview. You see, in the Magic Kingdom view of the world, the world is a wonderful and fascinating place. It's kind of like a gigantic theme park, and it's filled with magnificent monuments, historical places, cultural attractions, African safaris, ecotourism, quaint bed and breakfasts, coffee houses, fabulous restaurants and cuisines. It's the world of culture and knowledge, human achievement and technology. It's the world of art and literature and beauty. It's the world of business and entrepreneurship, wealth and capitalism. You see, in the Magic Kingdom worldview, people struggle with what I like to call first world problems, where to spend their vacations, how to decorate their homes, where to invest their wealth, what kind of cars they will drive, which diet and workout regimen is best, and how much money they'll leave to their children when they die. And all we have to do to enjoy the Magic Kingdom is to buy a ticket and to go in and explore it and go on all the rides we want. And for those of us who can afford the ticket, it can be a pretty amazing ride. Now all of those things I just described are true about the incredible world that we live in. The world is a magical place. God has created an amazing world for us to explore and see and learn about all of the wonderful aspects of human achievement and literature and art and beauty and science and business, technology. But you see, there's also a different worldview than that. It's darker, it's more sinister. And I'd like to call this one the tragic kingdom view of the world. It's very different, but it's also true. 
You see, in the tragic kingdom view of the world, we need only to begin with the headlines of the last few months, the earthquake and tsunami that devastated the lives of thousands, tens of thousands across Japan, the revolutions across the Middle East and the crackdowns by brutal dictators remind us that the world is a violent place where human rights are regularly savaged. Last year's Haiti earthquake took 230,000 lives in 60 seconds and left a million people like Demosi homeless. In the tragic kingdom world, millions of people are starving to death. Right now, there are severe famines in North Korea, northern Kenya, and Somalia. In fact, one billion people on our planet are starving to death tonight as we sit here. There's the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Darfur, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, nuclear weapon threats in Iran and North Korea, the 20-year war in the Congo in which 20 million people have been killed and women are brutally raped in the tens of thousands, a war uh, that has taken that many lives and most Americans have never heard of. In the tragic kingdom, people struggle with the consequences of climate change, ethnic and religious hatreds and violence, the blight of human trafficking, pandemic diseases like AIDS, cholera, tuberculosis, swine flu, and the staggering problem faced by more than 50 million orphans in Africa alone. But let's not leave out of that worldview the, the, the statistics of widespread grinding and brutal poverty. The fact that 2.4 billion people, more than a third of the population of our planet, live on less than $2 a day. That 1 million die annually of malaria. That 33 million are living with HIV and AIDS. That 1 billion lack clean water and sanitation. And you probably already know the most shocking statistic of all, that 22,000 children under the age of five die every single day of preventable causes simply because they're poor. That's one child every four seconds. It's about eight million children per year. You see, this tragic kingdom is the reality that young Ruth in Bolivia and Demosi in Haiti were born into. This is the world into which one half of the world's children will be born, a world that brutalizes them in unimaginable ways. You see, that's the tragic kingdom view of the world, and it's very different from the magic kingdom view, but it's also true about the world we live in. Now, most Americans don't know much about this tragic kingdom. In fact, they go out of their way to avoid it often because they don't like it. They much prefer the magic kingdom worldview. It's much safer to live in the magic kingdom worldview, the happiest place on earth, as Disney World says. But you know, for us as Christians, there's really a third worldview that we need to consider, a third kingdom. It's called the kingdom of God. What is God's worldview? And that worldview beckons us to ask the question of what God sees when he looks at our world, the world that he loves so much that he sent his only son to die for it, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What does God think when he sees the unbearable suffering of the poor and the oppressed around the world, and then he looks at us, the wealthiest and best resourced nation of Christians in the 2,000-year history of the Christian faith? What does the kingdom of God have to say about disparity? You see, the children that died yesterday, the children that died today, the 22,000 that died today, they weren't our children, yours and mine, but they were God's children. 
They were the children of the poorest of the poor, and their deaths were caused by the conditions they were born into. They died from complications in childbirth miles away from any medical help. They died of hunger and malnutrition and weakened immune systems. They died from waterborne diseases present in the contaminated water that the only choice they have for drinking. They died from simple respiratory infections and something as stupid as diarrhea. They died from malaria and yellow fever and HIV and AIDS. But most tragically of all, they died needlessly because the causes of their death are easily prevented. But let me tell you what I would write on their death certificates as the real cause of their death. If I was the coroner, I would write one word, cause of death, apathy. Apathy of the world leaders, apathy of the news media, apathy of the general public. But perhaps what most breaks the heart of God is the apathy of the church. There's a question that appears on the cover of my book, The Hole in Our Gospel, that gets at this basic issue, and it's a simple question. What does God expect of us? In light of all of this that I've just cataloged in our world, just what is it that God expects of you and me living here in this place at this time? In some ways, it's a simple question. I tried to take the next 300 pages to answer it. Uh, turned out it wasn't that easy to answer that question. I believe that every Christian confronted with the realities of our world has to answer this basic question, just what is it that God expects of me? The thesis of my book is that there's something missing, that there's a gaping hole in our understanding of the gospel. There's not a hole in the gospel, there's a hole in our understanding of the gospel because we have failed to grasp the meaning of the kingdom of God that Christ spoke so many times about. I think someone said today that Christ talked about the kingdom of God more than 90 times in the New Testament. He was a man obsessed with this concept of the kingdom of God and bringing the kingdom of God through his church. You know, this word gospel uh, literally means good news. I think we all know that. And when most of us think of the gospel, we think in terms of the good news that Christ died for our sins and that we can now be forgiven and reconciled to God. And that is certainly good news. But is it all of the good news? Is it all of the good news that the gospel was meant to bring? You see, I believe that this view of the gospel is one-dimensional. It's a view that often sees the gospel as just a transaction. It's between me and God. It's a personal transaction. And some people approach this transaction almost like they're trying to buy, or buy some fire insurance. They buy the policy, they put it in their drawer, and they go back to the party, go back to whatever they were doing, because it doesn't require them to change anything in their lives. They've just got to say the prayer, sign the covenant, they're forgiven. Now, this incomplete view of the gospel makes no demands on our behavior. It makes no demands on our money. It makes no demands on our compassion. And evangelism just becomes the process of getting as many people as possible to buy the same fire insurance policy that we bought, period. But is that really what God expects from his church and those that claim to follow Christ? Is that really all? Is that a world-changing view of this amazing gospel? Or have we replaced the powerful, high-definition, technicolor gospel that Jesus proclaimed with a shrunken, grainy, black-and-white shadow of the real thing? You see, I believe that the gospel, the message of Jesus, was meant to be so much more than that. 
It was actually intended to ignite a revolution, a revolution that would build God's kingdom on earth and it would be led by Christ's followers. This kingdom revolution would begin at the cross. It would begin in the most personal and private way as our sins were individually forgiven through Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. But it wouldn't end there. You see, it would culminate in a most public way as each one of us, forgiven and empowered by the Holy Spirit, would go into the world boldly proclaiming this good news, but also being the good news, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, as we reached out to our fellow man with compassion that was fueled and driven by the love of Christ in us. In other words, Christ's love expressed through us to the world, to a hurting world. You see, this gospel, the one I'm talking about, is so much more than a private transaction between God and us. It is so much more than a recital of the sinner's prayer. It's a vision of a changed people, challenging and changing the prevailing values and practices of our world. It's about this mission statement, engaging our culture and changing the world. Not just faith, but action. Not just the talk, but also the walk. I was hungry, Jesus said, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. In prison, and you came to me. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. You see, this was the good news the gospel was meant to bring. This was the good news that had the power to change the world. Jesus called this the coming of the kingdom of God, something we acknowledge every time we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When? Now, on earth, as it is in heaven. Well, we might ask the question, how have we Christians done in 2,000 years? Have we been that good news for the poor that the scripture talks about? Unfortunately, I'm afraid that history shows a pretty spotty track record, and I want to give a few examples of that tonight, because I want you to understand that there are blind spots for all of us in our faith. Between 1620 and the beginning of the 20th century, our European ancestors, most of whom came here for religious freedom, systematically marginalized and even exterminated the Native American people groups who were living here. Some Christians participated in the slaughter directly, others just sat silently by watching it happen. Today we would call it genocide if it happened anywhere else in the world. But that's the history of our country. During that same period, Christians supported and perpetuated slavery in the United States and ultimately fought a war to desperately preserve it in the Civil War that cost millions of American lives. Southern slave owners would sometimes go to church on Sunday morning and then they'd come home and beat and rape their slaves on Sunday evening. Now, were there opposing voices in the church Yes, to be honest, there were. There were opposing voices in the church at the time, but they were the minority voices, and they were insufficient to end slavery for hundreds of years because the majority voices prevailed. And how about my own parents' generation? Are you ashamed, as I am, that maybe your grandparents uh, or parents, depending on your age, lived in an America that would deny basic human rights to African Americans simply because of the color of their skin? This was done with the knowledge and active participation of American churches and Christians. It was another shameful chapter in our history, and we ask 50 years later, how could our parents have been so blind? How could they have missed it? This is such a basic human right, 
How could people in my lifetime have missed that in the 1940s and 50s and 60s? But let's not become too arrogant and proud in this 21st century. Let me ask the question, what about us? Is our eyesight any better than our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents? What are our blind spots today? What are the sins of omission for our generation, the ones that our grandchildren will judge us for someday? Where are the holes in our 21st century gospel? Will it be that we built bigger and bigger church sanctuaries to meet our consumptive needs while our brothers and sisters in the global south lived and died in demeaning poverty, ravaged by hunger, thirst, disease, genocide, war, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the global south? Or will it be that in the wealthiest community of Christians in 2,000 years, we give just 2.4% of our incomes to the work of the Lord, 75% less than the biblical tithe? And in America, the poorest 20% give a higher percentage of their income than the wealthiest 20% of Americans. Or maybe it'll be that while we marched in the streets to oppose health care reform, 14 million of our neighbors' children right here in America live beneath the poverty line with no access to health care, while we carried signs in the street to oppose the government providing health care for those kids. Or maybe it will be that while we invested all of our great passion and energy to stop gay marriage, we turned a deaf ear to the cries of those 22,000 children who will die today. Did you know that the sin of Sodom that most outraged God was not their sexual immorality, although that was a problem? Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said about Sodom. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Do those words describe the American church? Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, not helping the poor and the needy. For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank fine wines. I was a stranger and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison and you said I was getting what I deserved. Perhaps this is a more accurate rendering of the passage in Matthew 25 for many. American Christians. So let me ask, where did this hole in our gospel come from? How did we come to trade God's expansive vision and his kingdom of a world transformed by his followers for the world that we see around us today? How did we trade God's exhortation to go into all the earth to be salt and light and as his ambassadors to the least and the lost for bigger churches and better cars, more luxurious homes, and a quest for our own personal gratification and comfort? These are tough questions for us in America. You know, many of us have bought into the American dream as if it came directly from God through scripture to us, the American dream. The fact that we live in a country where anyone who works hard and uses their God-given gifts can succeed and can create wealth is a good thing. That's a good thing. But scripture never tells us that this money is ours to use as we please. And it certainly doesn't follow from scripture that accumulating more and more stuff in the pursuit of our own comfort and luxury is somehow what God expects of us. Is God really pleased to see all of us living large while Demosi in Haiti lives in a five foot by eight foot tent 
after losing both of her limbs in an earthquake. This isn't what scripture teaches us about success and money. In the book of Deuteronomy, just before the Israelites ended their 40 years in the wilderness and were about to enter the promised land, this was God's warning to them. They were about to go from a time of need, a wilderness experience, to a time of prosperity. And there was a stern warning that came from God. Before you go into the promised land, dripping with milk and honey, he said this, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increases, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, and I love this for America, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. God is the one that gives us the ability to produce wealth. You know, to me, this passage speaks directly to the mentality of the American dream. The belief that our power and the strength of our hands have somehow produced this prosperity. God felt a need to refute this line of thinking before Israel took one step into the promised land because he knew the dangers that wealth and comfort would bring to his chosen people. And in the very next verse, he tells them what the consequences will be for failing to heed his warning. He says this, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Pretty heavy words from the book of Deuteronomy. Let me circle back as I try to close and land this plane. Let me circle back to the question I posed at the beginning. In a world characterized by the heartbreaking disparities that I've described tonight, what does God expect of us? You know, in Matthew, an expert in the law asked this same question uh, to Jesus in a very direct way, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And I love this for those of us who like to keep things simple. I'm not a theologian, and sometimes I like to read the Bible on a very simple level. It was a very simple answer. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, he said. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I love that. The second is like it. Loving your neighbor as yourself is like loving the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and strength. They're, they're kind of, they kind of go together. By loving our neighbor as ourselves, we demonstrate to Christ how much we love him. God's expectations are actually pretty simple. Love God and love our fellow man, period. That's about all the theology you need to understand what God expects of you and me. And I believe it turns out that these two commandments, if the church really took them seriously, absolutely have the power to change the world. In fact, I would argue that the Christian church has changed the world, those that have lived out these commandments. Uh, and the world is a better place today because of the church. 
Well, how do we apply all of this to our lives and our worldviews? It can all be very confusing, and it seems like there are so many choices that we confront about our lives, our careers, our families, our money, where we live, what we buy. All of those decisions are confusing. How can we live in such a way that our lives are pleasing to God? Well, unfortunately, after all of this, I don't have a profound answer for you this evening because I struggle with all the same issues you do. What car will I drive? You know, will I buy that new carpet for our living room? Will we go on vacation this year? I mean, I don't live like a hermit. I assume most of you don't live like a hermit unless you're a college student, you might. <laughs> but I have a metaphor that might be helpful. I suspect most of you own some kind of GPS navigation device. Uh, or have at least used one. A few years ago, I got one for Christmas, and yes, I realized the money could have fed a family for a year that was spent on my GPS system. I just used it this weekend in Illinois. But here's how a GPS works. You start by entering a destination. Where is it that you want to go? Where do you want your journey to take you? And as it turns out, determining your desired destination is the most important step of all because your chosen destination will determine every one of the other steps on the journey. Which roads you will take, what turns you will take, how to avoid roadblocks, and all of the different places you'll pass through on your journey. The GPS will tell you uh, every single twist and turn on your route. And in fact, if you get off the road and on the wrong route, it will even tell you how to get back. It will chirp at you recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Have you ever needed that feature in your life? You, you, you got off the path and you needed to recalculate? Well, a GPS helps you do that. But here's the thing about a GPS. If you get the destination wrong, then every step along the way, every instruction along the way will be wrong as well. And the same is true in life. If we enter the wrong destination, it leads us away from God's plan for our lives. So what GPS destination have you entered for your life? Here are a few destination possibilities that seem to be very popular in America. Destination one, professional success. I want to become a successful fill-in-the-blank. Lawyer, doctor, accountant, teacher. Professional success is my destination. How about this one, personal and family happiness. That's not a bad thing. I want to be happy and I want to have a happy family. Or how about these that are a little more edgy, wealth and power. That's my goal. Fame and influence, what a great ambition. Comfort and security. I just want to live my life so I'm comfortable and secure. I've got enough money in my 401k account. Or maybe some combination of these destinations for life. And all of these are deceptively attractive life goals. Uh, but let's see what driving directions we might get with destinations like these. See, our GPS might offer directions like this. Your goal is wealth and power, professional success, comfort and security. Step one, look out for number one. Drive hard and fast and stay on the highway at all costs. Become a workaholic. Avoid costly detours, things like time with family and friends, relationships or service to others. Spend your money to get the things you want because you've earned it. Put on the blinders and look away from the global problems of the poor and the needy. You don't want to get distracted on the journey because those things won't help you get there. Don't let your religious faith make too many demands on the rest of your life. Keep it in the safe zone. Turn off your moral compass. It can be so annoying and inconvenient. And let the ends justify the means in your life. 
Those are some of the driving directions that success and power and influence and fame might, might give you. But what if you entered a different life destination, not success or happiness or comfort? Let's try entering the one that Jesus suggested, love God and love our neighbors. That's my destination in life. That's my goal in life. I want to love God and love my neighbor. With this new destination, the GPS would give you a whole different set of deriving directions. It might say things like these, put the needs of others ahead of your own. Take detours when someone needs your help. Keep your relationship with God as your north star. Make your work a means to the end of serving God, not an end in itself. Use your money to build God's kingdom, not yours. Don't confuse career success with being successful. Get off the highway to spend time with your family, friends, even though it slows you down. Invest your time, talent, and treasure in being rich toward God rather than getting rich yourself. Stop to help those broken down on the side of the road who need a little help on their journey and pay close attention to your moral compass. You see, being a follower of Christ in our world today is not defined by two or three momentous events. It's not even about what happens on Sunday mornings or our weekly Bible studies or our quiet times. It's about the thousands of little daily twists and turns, detours and choices that make up the very fabric of our lives. It's about a life well lived for Christ by those who know their destination and they take it seriously. They take seriously the role that God has given them to play as full participants in his kingdom work. You see, God offers us this amazing, amazing opportunity to share in the work of his kingdom. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, the Apostle Paul once wrote, as though God were making his appeal through us. Jesus told us that the kingdom of God is within you. We have the great privilege of being the hands and the feet of Christ to a hurting world. And each one of us in this room has been invited by Christ to share in that work and to change the world. And there's a thousand ways that we can participate, uniquely designed to fit our gifts and our calling. We can provide food to the hungry. We can mentor a young person who needs a role model we can visit with a lonely senior citizen. We can comfort the sick and the afflicted. We can welcome an immigrant family into our community. We can bring the good news of the gospel to someone who's never heard it. We can even save the life of a child halfway around the world. These are profoundly meaningful and significant things that, and Christ calls us into this work, the master's work to build the master's kingdom. These things are deeply human and moral and right and they are the very things that demonstrate that we are beings made in the very image of God, that we're children of the King, the capacity to love, the capacity to give, the capacity to grieve and rejoice. These are the things in which we find our true significance in purpose, not in cars and houses and vacations. Let me ask you another question. If you could write your own obituary, what would you write? What would you include? How would you want it to read? Would you want to write about the cars and the toys that you've owned, the real estate that you've bought, the job titles you've held, the list of investment gains and business deals you've made? I don't think most of us would want to put all of that in our obituary. Wouldn't we instead want to write about the people that we've loved, the lives we've enriched, the things we've done to help others, 
maybe write about our relationship with God and how it grew deeper every year? Wouldn't we want to write about the difference we've made in the world because we lived in it? Don't we all want our lives to make a difference? Actually, you won't get a chance to write your own obituary, but you do get to live the life that the writer will draw from. You do get to live the life that the writer will draw from. We all get a chance to determine our legacies. I want to direct just a few words before I close to this institution, Seattle Pacific University, and its legacy. I believe SPU has a key role in play, to play in changing our world. I want to start by quoting Phil Eaton, your president, whose words and envision encourage and inspire me a great deal. He said this in one of his writings, and our vision is this, we want to change the world with the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the big idea, preposterous and audacious, but I hope not arrogant. Can a university change the world? Should that be the goal of the university? Well, that's what our vision says. We want to equip our students to become graduates who are change agents. We want to equip and support our faculty in their scholarship and their teaching to become change agents. We want to model something very powerful and important in the way we do our business, a model that will change things in the world. We want to be change agents, that's our vision. We want to enter into God's big drama for his world. God's drama is about changing things to be better for all of his children everywhere, always. We want to be players, participants. That's our vision. Wow. I wish I could write words like that. These are wonderfully aspirational words, but actually achieving the aspiration is much easier said than done. And it requires constant reevaluation of the status quo. It will force SPU to make continually tough choices about courses, faculty, programs. And I want to challenge you to ask yourself this tonight, which world at SPU are you preparing your students to enter? The magic kingdom or the tragic kingdom? When your students graduate, how much will they know about the world where 2.4 billion people live on less than $2 a day? You know, I shared this earlier with the pastors and church leaders. In 1900, North Americans and Europeans comprised 82% of the world's Christians, 1900. Today, more than 60% of the world's Christians are in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The church has moved south, just like your grandparents might have. <laughs> what will your graduates understand about the rapidly growing majority church, church in the global south? And they will enter an America that is already 33% non-white, and it will be 50% non-white within 30 years. That's our country. Immigration has brought the world to our doorstep here in Seattle and all across America. But a Chronicle of Education survey of 20 Christian colleges four years ago found only 7% of our Christian college faculties are minorities of any kind. Think for a moment about the world that your students, which world your students will be better equipped for. The magic kingdom world of literature, literature history, art, and beauty or the more disturbing tragic kingdom, poverty, conflict, ethnic and religious tensions, and growing alienation. You see, these are the questions that confront an institution like SPU and every other college and university across this country. Just as we as individuals have legacies, so does an institution like SPU. So finally, I will close tonight with this Bible verse. Uh, it's a passage about legacy from the book of Job. The book of Job is not a book we often read. Um, 
It's not the most quoted book in the Bible. But Job was a man who was at peace with the choices he'd made on his life journey. Some terrible things happened to him, but Job was a man at peace because he had lived a life for God. He was righteous before God, and he knew it in his heart. And this is what he said he felt his legacy might be. He said this, and I'll close with these words. Ask if you wouldn't want this to be your legacy someday. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked, and I snatched the victims from their teeth. Thank you very much.